Good morning, everyone. For a second, I was like, who, who's she talking about? <laughs> I was like, that actually sounded pretty good. I was like, is that, is that me? Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be with you guys here this morning. Uh, like Tamika said, my name is Ronaldo. Uh, it is actually a real honor to be able to, uh, to share the word of God with you, with you all this morning. Um, uh, I also want to just thank Tamika and the whole team here at Knox Church for inviting me and for creating space uh, to share the Word of God this morning. Um, the roots with Knox Church goes deep. I used to work for the Scott Mission uh, many years ago, and the Scott Mission I know has different connections with Knox Church. I remember we celebrated uh, the 75th anniversary of, uh, of Scott Mission here in this very space a few years ago, and, uh, and since then I now work at Young Street Mission with my, my boy Pete, you know. We work at uh, Young Street Mission together, uh, continuing to kind of serve uh, the marginalized and those in need. So, as well as uh, continuing to serve uh, in the Toronto House of Prayer with Tamika. So, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot that I'm doing. Praise God. But, um, did you guys, are we good? Okay. All right. Sweet. Uh, I did want to share briefly with you this morning, and uh, I emphasize the word briefly, uh, just to give you a little, a little context. I can tend to be a little long-winded, so bear with me. Tamika's uh, graciously offered to be my timekeeper, so that's good. Uh, I also like to move around a lot, so you won't see me stuck here. I like to move around. You might see me come right in the pews. You never know where I'm going to end up by the end of this service, so just bear with me. Feel free to talk back to me. I enjoy people shouting at me. Just don't say anything bad. Encouraging, encouraging words are always welcome. You know, a little amen, yes, preach it, hallelujah, I'll take all of it. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The work that I do at Young Street Mission, the work that I've been involved in for literally about 15 years now, working with at-risk youth, the marginalized, um, the poor, those who are in need, um, it's always always been an interesting road. It's always been interesting. And uh, it didn't come about because... I chose it, but rather the Lord called me to it. Um, I'm not going to get into that story because, again, I have, I have a certain time. But uh, it was interesting. The other day, I was, uh, I was, I was uh, interacting with a young person uh, where I work. And this young person didn't know that I'm the director uh, there. So we're, we're kind of just, you know, we're, we're talking, we're chopping it up a little bit. And, uh, and so we've had a pretty good relationship. He kind of sees me as, like a, I guess, a mentor to some degree. And I think a few weeks later, he found out I'm the director. And he was shocked, and he came to me. He said, how come you didn't tell me that you were the director? You're the boss? I was like, well, should I, should I introduce myself like that? How management? I'm the boss here. You know, like, how, how do you want me to, you know? But he was like, almost like borderline offended. He's like, I don't understand, though, but we're so cool. And, you know, and, 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 you know, I told you all this stuff, and I never knew you were the boss. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's a good thing, right? And it made me think of of the way that Jesus tends to interact with us. Because you have to remember who Jesus is and the fact that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? He is the God who created the heavens and the earth, and yet he's also the God who came down and took on our form. He came down and took on our form, and he's actually the God who is not afar off, he's not distant, he's not detached or stoic, but he's the God who's in our midst. Or another way of saying it, he's all up in our business, right? He's all up in our business, amen? And so I want to I kind of go along that theme this morning 
from the passage. So the passage that was just read, we're going to kind of go through it line upon line. And I want to highlight some things. One, about who Jesus is. Two, about how that impacts us. And then three, what our response should be to that going forward. Can can we do that a little bit this morning? So in the passage, it says, uh, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, uh, he withdrew to Galilee. When Jesus heard that John had been thrown in prison, it says that he withdrew to Galilee. So here we have John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin. I think most of us know this by now. And he was thrown into prison. The reason why he was thrown into prison was because he was very outspoken about the relationship that Herod had with Herodias, his brother's wife. And in an effort to silence John the Baptist, he threw him in prison. Now, it seems like this is kind of a random occurrence. He was just trying to kind of cover his own, his own back and kind of being like, let me just put this guy aside and make sure he can't speak out against me anymore. But what he didn't understand was that he was actually operating within God's divine plan and timing. Because what was actually happening was, you have to understand that at that time, John the Baptist would have had a massive ministry at this point, right? I'm talking about John the Baptist would have baptized thousands of people at this point. Word about who he was had spread. He has disciples. He he has his own ministry, essentially. And then what happens immediately is he's thrown in prison. So what happens to that ministry when the leader of that ministry has now been locked up? What happens is there's actually a passing of the torch, So as John the Baptist is thrown into prison, and as his ministry is now coming to an end, Jesus' ministry is beginning to start. The significance of this is the fact that John the Baptist represents the last of the Old Testament prophets. You guys know this? He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so when he's put in prison, there's a a, a stop, so to speak, and then all of a sudden there's a new beginning. Where at that point, that's where Jesus steps on the scene. It says once John the Baptist is thrown into prison, it says that's when Jesus' ministry really starts. Now at this point, Jesus has already been doing some stuff in Galilee, right? We know about the wedding at Cana. We know about the the, the conversation he had with the Samaritan woman, right? We know about uh, the calling of the disciples. All this stuff took place in Galilee. So he's already been doing things, but it's about to go to another level because now you know, exactly what John the Baptist declared is now taking place. He says what? He said, I must decrease because it's time for Jesus to increase. And so the very thing that John the Baptist declared is now taking place at this very moment. So it says that, it says that when Jesus heard that John had been thrown into prison, he withdrew into Galilee. And then it says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the Sea of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, here's the thing. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a pastor. Let me just qualify this. I'm no pastor, right? Uh, God bless those who are, though. God bless those who are. But I do know a little something about church and ministry, and I've been involved in, in church ministry for a long time. Many years ago, I used to serve on, on the pastoral team at a church I was attending, so I know a little bit about it. Now, in starting a ministry, there's certain things you, you, you should do, Right? I mean, especially today, you know, they have like church planting courses and programs you could take. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's um, individuals who actually do social media for, you know, when you're starting a church and stuff like that. So, okay, you're going to start a church. You have, to, you have to do asset mapping. You have to look at the region and the location and, the, and, you know, understand the demographics of where you want to plant the church. And then you have to do a whole social media boom and maybe make t-shirts and stuff like that, you know, with saying, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of what we see today, right? So you look at Jesus, and he's about to start where John the Baptist left off. Remember, John the Baptist had a huge ministry. That's a hard act to follow. 
And Jesus, instead of going to, where would, you, where would you have started? I personally would have started in Jerusalem. I would have gone straight to Jerusalem, and I would have been like, this is where we're going to start, right? Because this is like the epicenter. So I'm going to go straight to Jerusalem, and we're going to just go, go gangbusters, and this is going to be the start of our ministry. That's what would have made sense to the natural mind, right? Because that's, that's how you start a ministry. You got to have your social media, and you have to do your research and your homework. You have to go to where the people are. You have to have a big bang. And yet Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. It actually says that he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then it says, uh, actually, let me, I'll read this part. It says, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here's the thing you have to understand about where Jesus chose to go. In this area, it was actually made up predominantly of Gentiles. Now, Gentiles were those who were not Jewish, right? So anyone who wasn't Jewish was considered a Gentile. So at this time, it was made up predominantly of Gentiles and those who were maybe like several generations removed from like their Jewish ancestors, but predominantly Gentiles. The other thing to note is when it says that they're beyond the Jordan River, the Jordan River actually acted as a symbolic barrier or a symbolic line of demarcation. In other words, those who were in Jerusalem, when they looked at those who were, who were beyond the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan, they would actually view them as outsiders, right? You guys ever heard that term, like somebody who's from the wrong side of the tracks? Anyone ever heard that? That's kind of the way they would look at those who are on the other side of the Jordan. It's like they're from the wrong side of the tracks, right? They're, they're the outsiders. We're the real Jewish people. We're the real children of promise. And over there are the Gentiles, And yet Jesus, instead of choosing to start his ministry on this side of the Jordan, Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to start my ministry over here on this side with the Gentiles. That doesn't make sense. Especially as you read the the scriptures, Jesus said, he says, you know, I'm I'm called to the Jewish people first. And yet, it's almost like he's making, doing a prophetic act saying, I'm going to start my ministry amongst the Gentiles so that they know that though I'm about to preach to the Jewish people, I have not forgotten about you. I'm not abandoning you. And so he starts his ministry amongst, amongst these Gentiles, these Gentiles. And then it says, um, uh, wave the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Am I the only person who sees the problem with this? Is it just me? Where have you heard the land of the, sh- or the valley of the shadow of death before? Where have you heard it before? Let me hear it. Psalm 23, what does it say? Who? What's that? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I'll fear no evil. Nobody wants to live in the valley of the shadow of death. Even with the housing crisis that we're having right now, I still would not choose to buy a house in the valley of the shadow of death. And Lord knows I'll take a house. But I will not take one in the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you guys, have you guys ever gone on like a a really long road trip? And sometimes, you know, the GPS takes you down a different path. Right, is it just me? And there's no, and it's nighttime, and there's no lights. There's no lights, there's just bush. Bush on the left, bush on the right, and you're here quoting Quoting the psalm saying, Lord, though 10,000 on this side, I will fear no You're just trying to get through because you're scared. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just me. I was scared, right? 
And so I don't know about you guys, but when, I, when the GPS takes me down a weird kind of path, uh, a weird route rather, and it's dark and there's bush on either side and there's no lights, I tend to just step on the gas just a little bit more because I'm trying to get through that patch as fast as I possibly can. Lest a zombie jump out and, <laughs> I don't know, I watch too many. <laughs> Maybe it's just me, I apologize. Anyways, the point is, the point is this. The point is that when it comes to the valley of the shadow of death, nobody lives there because they're trying to get through it, right? And when I'm talking about the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death or darkness, it really comes down to, I remember there was a, there was a I think it was a, 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 a saint or a preacher many years ago, he actually called it the, uh, the dark night of the soul. He called it the dark night of the soul, right? And what that really means, it's, 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 that, it's that point in your life where you're going through severe crisis or pain or heartache. It could, it could be darkness of the mind, right, where you just feel like you're tormented. Anybody ever, ever felt like that? You don't have to raise your hand for this one, right? But where you just feel like tormented, you just feel like, you know, you, you, you go to bed at night and you, you can't sleep. Your sleep is restless because you're so, the weight of the world feels like it's resting on your shoulders. I don't know what you guys, but there was a season in my life where I would go to bed with tears in my eyes and I would wake up and I'd still be crying. I was like, how is this even possible? And the tears were still there in the morning. They call it the dark night of the soul where you're going through so much pain and agony through personal circumstances, loss you know, traumatic events, whatever it may be, maybe a mental illness you're suffering with. And so this is, this is the place that most people, they just, they're just trying to get through to the other side. They're like, I just want to get through this, right? It could even be just darkness of the heart, where sometimes you just, you just need salvation. You just need Jesus to come and just save you. And yet, Isaiah is saying that in this place that there are people that actually live there. That there, there is no way out for them. They, this is where they've made their home. They've made peace with the darkness. They've, they've embraced the dark night of the soul because they said, this is all I've ever known and this is now where I live. This is what Isaiah is talking about. And yet Jesus, to start his ministry, says, I'm going to go and I'm going to live there. Imagine that. He says, I'm going to go and live there in the valley of the shadow of death. Not, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm not looking for the big accolades and the bright lights and all this different stuff. I'm going to live amongst those who are living in darkness. Why would he do this? Why would he choose to do this? The reason why is because he is and has always been a God of deep compassion. He's always been a God of hope. And more than that, he's always been a God of light. Who knows what John what John chapter 1 says. What does he say? He says, in him, John chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus, knowing that he is the light... He says, I'm going to go to those who are living in darkness. Why? Because they need me. Because they need that light. Because, here's the thing, I'm going to paraphrase it. What he's saying is, I'm not intimidated by the darkness that you're facing. Because the darkness can't overcome the light that's in me. So he's like, I'm not intimidated. I'm not thrown back. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not discouraged by your situation by your, by your circumstances, 
by the tra- traumatic events that you've gone through. He says, I'm the, I'm the God of deep compassion. He says, I'm not intimidated by it. Rather, I'm going to come down. I told you I like to move around, right? He said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to live. I'm not just going to come visit you in that place. He says, I'm going to make my home where you live so that I can be a light to those who dwell in darkness. Why was it that David was able to say, I'll fear no evil because you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because as he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he already found God standing there waiting for him. He says, I've been waiting for you here. Let's get through this. Because not only is he the God who comes down and, and, and gets down into the, into the dirt and into the mud and the guck with us and sits down in the dirt and says, I'm here with you. Because of the love that he has for us and the strength of his power, he's able to pull us up out of that place and walk us through to the other side. That's the God that we serve, a God of deep compassion, but a God who also has the strength and the power to get us up and out of that place and into the other side, that we can go from living in the valley of the shadow of death to walking through it, all the while never fearing, because his rod and his staff, they comfort us. And so, as he's, as he's there... And he says, I'm going to make my home amongst them in their midst. I'm going to be a light to those who dwell in darkness. Now comes the message, right? What message is he going to preach? What's going to be the first proclamation that comes out of his mouth? And the first thing out of his mouth that he starts preaching when he gets there is repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This God of light, the message of light that he brings is the call to repentance because he says the kingdom has come. Why is this so significant? It's significant because for a long time they have been believing in a different message. They've been believing in the fact that this is the way it's always going to be, that no one's going to come for us, that we are the outsiders, that we are the ones who are from the wrong side of the track, that we are the Gentiles, the rejected ones, the ones that even the Samaritan woman, she says, why are you talking to me? It's like, don't you know who I am? You're not even supposed to talk to me. I don't think you know how things work here. I don't think you know the rules. And Jesus says, you've been believing in a wrong message, but I've come to proclaim something different to you. The message is you need to repent because the kingdom has come. That's the message of light. Imagine that, that those living in darkness, that what they really needed to hear was the fact that there is a kingdom that he is the king of, and that that kingdom is what he's called, now calling them into. In other words, he's calling them out of what? The kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the message. He begins to preach. Again, he picked right up where John the Baptist left off. He says, he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a... This passage always struck me because I know the work that I do. I know the work that I've committed myself to for many years. The encouragement that I have is knowing that Jesus would never ask us to do something that he himself has not already done and isn't already doing himself. The fact that he would go and live amongst those who are dying, those who are broken, those who are in need of a physician, as he called them. He says, I've already done it, now I'm calling you to do it. This is, the, this is the hard part of the message. I want you to catch this part. What does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 5? 
Because remember, he, the, he, he does all this, and then he goes on to preach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says this. He says, you, you are speaking to the believers, which is us. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is a hard pill to swallow because I know that the darkness can be uncomfortable. It could be uncomfortable to, to, to see somebody who's maybe on the street and maybe they don't smell very good, you know? Maybe they're struggling with mental illness and they're talking to themselves as they're going down the street. Maybe they're asking you for money and, and you're, you don't want to give it to them and maybe they get aggressive. You don't know what you're encountering. It could be uncomfortable to talk with somebody who's dealing with a severe mental illness, to talk with somebody who's dealing with a severe depression, to talk with somebody who's, who's actually contemplating suicide, to talk with somebody who might actually be cutting themselves, to talk with somebody who's lost a loved one and is going through a very traumatic situation. It, darkness is uncomfortable. Let's just get it out of the way. There's no other way to say it. It's uncomfortable. And that's okay. What's not okay is for us to avoid that darkness and continue to congregate around other lights. This is a hard message. This is the hard part. I told you, it's hard. Because I, I had to face this myself because I know it's uncomfortable. And it's a lot easier to be around other people of light. It's like, let's congregate and let's be light together. But you have to understand that the light shines in the darkness, right? That's what the light is for, right? He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. He says, nobody, nobody puts the light under a basket. Let your light shine. He says, this is why I've put the light in you. It's so that you can be light to those living in darkness. In other words, he's saying, I've started the ministry. Now I'm calling you to continue it. Now I'm not here saying, you know, quit your job and just go live, live on, on the streets and, and be a light to those. That's all I'm saying. Unless the Lord is saying that, then by all means, the Lord bless you and keep you. But what I am saying is that it's not okay for us to continue to avoid these situations. It's not okay for us to neglect the light that God's put on the inside of us when there's so many around us in this city, maybe even in our spheres of influence, that are living in darkness and we have yet to engage them in conversation to show them that there is hope in Christ. We have yet to engage them in conversation say, I want to pray for you. Or say, you know what, I was praying for you the other day and the Lord said this to me. I don't know if this resonates, but I just want to give you this word as a word of encouragement. You know what? I just feel like I just want to just bless you with X amount of money. Like, whatever it looks like, but we have to be willing to partner with the Lord as agents of light in the midst of darkness. Because that is what he says. He says, this is, you have to say that this was, this isn't a suggestion when Jesus is saying these things in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a command. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying, look at the example that I just set. Now go and do likewise. What I love about Jesus is when he preached the message of the kingdom, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't just leave it there. He didn't just leave it at a message. But he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says, and now I'm going to show you what the kingdom looks like. 
And as you continue to read on in chapter 4, it says that he was healing the sick, that they were bringing to him paralytics, demoniacs, so people who were demon-possessed, struggling with demons, that, that all sorts of people were coming to Jesus. They were bringing them to Jesus during that time. He says, repent, the kingdom has come, but now I'm also going to demonstrate what the kingdom looks like. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a two-part message, right? There's the, de- there's the declaration of the message through word, but then there's the demonstration of the message through deed. Does that make sense? This is the, this is the reality that he's called us into, to both declare and to demonstrate the reality and the power of his kingdom and to be light to those who dwell in darkness. I don't know much. Oh, okay. Perfect. That means a story time. <laughs> it means story time. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, I'd gone, uh, me and several others, part of the Toronto House of Prayer, we had gone to Hamilton for a mission trip. We went to go visit another house of prayer out in Hamilton. And it was in the summertime. And uh, every summer at that time, what they would do is this ministry, uh, this, this prayer ministry out in Hamilton, is they would actually rent a U-Haul truck. So they'd rent a U-Haul truck, they'd decorate the inside, turn it into kind of like a, a prayer truck, basically, and they would park it beside a shelter. And they would just hand out water, offer to pray for people. It would kind of be just a place where people would come and just kind of congregate, I guess. Uh, I'm not going to lie, felt a little weird at the time, at the time, but I said, okay, we'll go with it. And so, uh, so a few of us, we went there, and we did the, um, there were shifts. There were shifts that people had to take watching the truck, because the truck was there 24 hours a day, and it had to be manned all the time. And I remember our first shift that me and uh, the others that, we, that I went down with was, I think it was like the 11 to like 4 a.m., 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift, right, at night. This is our first time in Hamilton, right, first time visiting this ministry. We don't know what's going on. And we're looking off in the distance. There's a guy over there. He's super jacked, and he's practicing like his taekwondo or something like that, and he's talking to himself, and I'm just like, what, what have we done, right? I'm like, what have we done? Because if this guy crosses the street, I don't think I could take him, right? This is what's going through my mind. And, uh, but it's cool. He came over, and I think they actually warned us about him, and we started talking and stuff like that. There's a few others that came. So it turned out to be a pretty positive experience, but I remember what hit me was the next day. The next day. So now it's morning time. It's during the day. I think it's like afternoon. And we're at the truck. We're handing out water, having conversation with different individuals. And some of us are sitting inside the truck. And this one, this one gentleman, he comes and uh, he's like, yeah, this is great. You know, I love what you guys are doing. And he's been there before. And there's a guitar inside the, the truck. And so he picks up the guitar and he starts, he's kind of just strumming. He starts playing, right? Starts playing the guitar. And there's another young lady. And you could tell just from talk with her, even just from seeing her, that she was, uh, she was on something, right? That she was, you know, she was struggling with addictions. And at the time, she was also struggling to get her child back because her child had been taken by CAS because, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't care for them. It's a young girl. It's probably like, couldn't be more than like 19, maybe 20, right? And uh, I remember she came in the truck and she was just sitting there and she was talking about uh, kind of her church background and stuff like that and just telling her story how she really wanted to get her, her child back and so forth. And I remember, I, I'll never forget this. I remember the, the dude is there, and he's just strumming on the guitar, just playing this melody. And then this young lady, she begins to sing. And she begins to sing. I can't remember what, uh, what worship song it was, but she just begins to sing this worship song. And I kid you not, the presence of God came in that truck in a way like I hadn't felt before. I'm talking about the tangible presence of God, where you could feel it tangibly in this U-Haul truck parked beside a shelter. 
with this, this woman who's struggling with addiction, who just wants her child back, and this random guy strumming on a guitar, but somehow the presence of God came in that truck. And I remember I put my head up, and I literally said this to myself. I said, Jesus, when did you get here? I was like, what? what's going on? Because in, my, in my, my natural kind of limited thinking, that's not where I would expect Jesus to show up. I expect Jesus to show up here in this context, right? To have that type of experience with Jesus in this context makes sense to me. That's what I was used to. But to have experienced his presence in that context completely shifted my paradigm. And that's when I realized that he wants to be in the midst of those living in darkness. That that is where he shows up. He definitely shows up in our midst, right? The Bible's clear that he shows up. He inhabits the praises of his people. You know, he t- the Bible's clear about that. But it's something about when, when you're with those who are really in need, when, when there's such a, I don't even know how to explain it, like there's no, there's no false pretenses, no like trying to make it look pretty or sound pretty, it's just, it's just messy. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, it's just messy. It looks like mess. And yet Jesus, for Jesus to show up in the midst of that mess and to make himself known in that, in that context was mind-blowing to me, was mind-blowing. And that's when it clicked. I said, truly, he is the God of light who shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never overcome it. Amen? Okay. So we're going to do. Um, I have two reflection questions for us. And so we're going to take a few minutes and we're just going to... I just want you to, to, to sit with these questions. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to really, uh, to really speak to you about it. As much as we're going to ponder these questions, I want you to really give space and to give room for the Holy Spirit to really speak to you and to even minister to you and to help you kind of work through or even wrestle maybe through these questions for the next few minutes. And uh, I don't know if it's going to be up. Uh, so the first question is, what area of your life do you need Jesus to show up in as compassion and light. Maybe there's areas of darkness, of pain, trauma, whatever the case is, things just aren't working out. What area of your life do you need Jesus to show up in as compassion and light? And two, how can you let your light shine to the world? What does that look like for you in your spheres of influence, maybe stepping out of your comfort zones, doing something that's a little out of the norm? How can you let your light shine to the world? So we're going to sit with those two questions for the next few minutes, and then we'll move on.